Good morning, church. Open up your Bible to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. We are um, looking at Leviticus 23 today, and this is a, a chapter that's all about the feasts that Israel kept. I hope you're able to do your activity last week if you've been doing your activities of giving out some food um, to some people. Uh, I hope the busyness didn't get in your way. I hope uh, that you, you weren't prevented from doing so because you're too busy because that was the point of last week's lesson or, or maybe that helped you to remember that lesson by, uh, by that challenge. Our activity for this week, if you're following along in the book, is I want you one night this week over dinner to sit back and as a family or, or whether you've got some other people around as well, maybe some brethren around to your home, um, I want you to talk about the good things that God has done for you. I want you to go around the table and for everyone to say, this is something good that God has done for me. This is something that I'm grateful for, that I remember has, has happened in the past or is happening now, or something that God has promised, something that I'm thankful for. Because that's what the feasts of Israel are all about. You're familiar with uh, feast days or memorial days. We have them in our country. In Australia, we have not only things like Christmas and Easter, but we also have Anzac Day and we have Australia Day. We have uh, Memorial Day. We have Are You OK Day. We have all of these days. And they're meant to remind you of something. They're meant to make you stop and think about uh, an idea, maybe something that happened in the past, maybe something that is important to think about, like Are You OK, talking about those who are struggling with mental health or those who are in a bad um, place mentally. You've got, um, as you look around the world, all countries do this. Every country has a special day that they celebrate, oftentimes many days that they celebrate. In a couple of weeks in Mexico, they've got the Dias de los Muertos. Um, if you've seen the, the movie Coco, um, the movie Coco is all about that. I really like the movie Coco. It's one of those kids' movies. It's about the Day of the Dead. It's about the fact that um, in Mexico, I think it's November the 2nd this year, they all have this feast day where they remember their family who has died and, and who are no longer with them. You've got in other countries, you know, um, New Zealand has their Waitangi Day where they remember the treaty that was formed between the 45 Maori chiefs and the British way back in the 1870s, I think. Um, France has its Bastille Day, you know, the day where the people stormed the Bastille prison and it sparked the French Revolution of the, um, of the 1780s. Uh, you've got Guy Fawkes Day happening in the UK, the day where everyone remembers and is grateful for the fact that Guy Fawkes um, and his gunpowder plot didn't happen and they didn't blow up the English monarchy. Um, in the US, you've got Martin Luther King um, day where they celebrate the, the work that Martin Luther King did to integrate society and to break down some of those barriers of, of racial segregation that existed. So all countries have this idea of special days that they celebrate and these days are meant to uh, make you stop and think about often something in the past, often something that has happened which still affects you. So when we open up to Leviticus 23, that's exactly where we find ourselves. We find ourselves talking about special feast days that if you were born into, um, let's say, the tribe of Reuben in the 10th century BC, these would be your special days. These would be the days that come up every year that you celebrate. So this morning, in today's lesson, there's two parts. 
I'm going to go through, first of all, each of these feast days as we see them in Leviticus 23. And then I'm going to spend a bit of time looking at some application for how we can apply the same principles to our life today. So let's go on to part one, an explanation of the feast days. Leviticus 23 verses 1 and 2 says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations or assemblies, times where people come together. They are my appointed feasts. And what we're going to see is, I think there's seven feasts that are listed here that the people were required to keep. So let's go through them and uh, explain what they are. The first one is the Sabbath. Let's read verse 3. It says, six days shall, shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. You'll be familiar probably with the Sabbath. Um, there are still a lot of people today who practice the Sabbath. The idea behind the Sabbath is that once a week um, on the Saturday, the people were required to stop from doing their work to take time out and to rest and reflect on the good things that God had done for them. And the idea behind the Sabbath is, is this, that God gives you rest. God gives you time to rest. He provides for you so much so that he wants you not just to work, 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 but he actually cares about you getting the rest um, and recovery that your body and your soul and your mind needs. And ultimately, when we look at the New Testament, we see that the writer of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath and he talks about the rest of God. And he applies that to the rest that we're waiting for as Christians, looking for that time after our life is done, where God will give us the rest that we so long for. So that's the Sabbath. We won't spend too much time on that because you know a fair bit about that. Then we've got in verses four through eight, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, let's read verses four through eight. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month um, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now, if you want a larger explanation of what the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover is all about, you go back to Exodus chapter, I think it's around chapter 14 and 15, where the um, Israelites left Egypt and that was the first time they celebrated the Passover. And so it's got a lot more of the details there. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a feast that goes for seven days, goes for a whole week. And during that week, you have to search around your house. You have to find all of the, the leavening agents, so yeast and, and those kinds of products that make bread to rise up. You have to find them all. You have to throw them out, um, get them out of your house. You're not allowed to have any in, in any part of your house for a whole week. And you are to symbolically represent what it means to get rid of sin from your house, to get rid of any leavening sin agent. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would have uh, one night of that week, you would have the Passover meal, or the Jews called it the Passover cedar. And this is the meal that was taken on the night when Jesus was betrayed. We call it the Last Supper. He was in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the middle of that week, and taking the Passover as part of that. 
Okay. So um, then we go on to the third feast, which is the feast of first fruits. So this is in verses 9 through verse 14. Um, we won't read through all these verses. You can, you can read through them later or you might have already read them. So this was um, held actually at the same time of, as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I said to you, the Feast of Unleavened Bread goes for seven days. It goes for a week. So after the Sabbath in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would have the, the next day afterwards, the Sunday. That was when you had the Feast of First Fruits. Essentially what happens is this. If you were an Israelite living in ancient Israel, here's a quick farming lesson for you. In the middle of August, that's when you start to plough your fields and you start to plant the, the seeds, whatever you're growing, barley or wheat or, or whatever it might be. So you start planting in about the middle of August. Then um, the weather gets cooler as you head into winter and, and in the Near East region, they get all of their rain in the wintertime. We usually get our rain in the summer here in Queensland. Um, but over there they get all their rain during the winter so they'd get rain all through the winter and then as it gets warmer and goes into the, um, the spring months that's when you start getting the harvest coming forward and the first thing that comes forward in the harvest in ancient Israel is the barley crops and they come around this, you know, this beginning of springtime when the temperature is just starting to heat up and that is the exact time of the Feast of First Fruits. So the concept here is this. If you're a barley farmer, you're the first people in all of Israel to start getting your produce coming through. You're the first people to start getting a harvest. And God says, I want all the barley farmers to come and to get the first little bit that they harvest, the first couple of things that they cut down, the first sheaf that they bind together with all their barley, that's not for you, that's for God. And so all of the barley farmers were required to grab their first barley sheaf and to walk it up to Jerusalem, give it to the priest and say, that's not for me, that's for God. And the beauty of all of this is that it's about trust. It's saying, you know, we've gone through a long winter where we've used up all of our produce, we're running low on supplies, um, I could make a, a quick dollar if I decided to sell off my barley and, and sell it to those who are in need. What, what I'm going to do, though, is trust that there's more to come. I'm going to trust that this first piece of the harvest represents the greater harvest that God will promise me if I'm faithful to him. So it's a really beautiful thing. It's all about trusting in God and saying, I know that just as he's provided the first fruits, the first bit of harvest, I know that he's going to continue to provide for me. Now, if you're clever and you're paying attention, you will have put a couple of things together. You will have noticed this Feast of First Fruits, it happens the day after the Sabbath in the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Jesus was killed during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what day did he rise? He rose on the day after the Sabbath. He actually rose, Jesus was resurrected during the day of the Feast of First Fruits. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. I never realised this until this week. Maybe you all did, maybe I'm just behind. But I only just figured this out and it's really cool and really exciting. 1 Corinthians chapter 15.
and verses 20 to 23, reads like this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You see what happens here? Jesus was resurrected on the day of the feast of first fruits. And Paul says, yeah, that's the point, right? The point is that Jesus is the first fruits now. He embodies this, this feast. He, he is the actualization of this feast. Jesus has become our first fruits. He's the promise that there's more to come, that the harvest is coming later on. And what's the harvest? It's you and I will also be raised from the dead to live with God forever. Isn't that beautiful? I never picked that up. All right. Let's go on to our, our next one, the Feast of Pentecost. So this is in Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 22. Now, this is very similar um, to the Feast of First Fruits. It happens 50 days later from uh, the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why it's called Pentecost, by the way. Pent, as in Pentagon, 550. It's Pentecost, it's 50 days later. Okay, so this is really similar to the Feast of First Fruits, but instead of it just being barley that's harvested at this time, you've got figs that are starting to come onto the trees, you've got grapes that are starting to come onto the vines, you've got the wheat that's coming through and is harvested now. So now everyone can join in, and everyone can take their first fruits and give to God. All right. Now we've also got the Feast of Trumpets. This is in verses 23 to 25. We're going to read this. Leviticus 23, verses 23 to 25. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. I'll be very honest with you here. I don't really know what the Feast of Trumpets is about. I've read a bunch of commentaries on this. I've read a bunch of other, um, you know, what the rabbis said about the Feast of Trumpets and, and trying to figure out exactly what the Feast of Trumpets celebrated. I can't really figure it out. There are a number of ideas. We know that trumpets were used by priests in ancient Israel. We know, according to Numbers chapter 10, that the priests were required to blow the trumpets when they went into war or when the warfare was ended or when the Israelites marched or when sacrifices were offered, they would have trumpets that accompanied all of these things. Maybe it's something to do with that. We know that it says in verse 24 there that the, they were to be blown as a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. So it's a memorial. It's to get the people to remember something. Whether it's a specific occasion, we're not sure. The text doesn't really say. Or whether it was just another time where you stop, you blow some trumpets, and everyone just remembers what God has done and who God is. Um, some people think that it was about proclaiming the great battles that God had won in the past. Some people think that it might be about the coming day of the Lord when God will come with trumpet sound. 
uh, and judge the nations. And, and in the New Testament, we see that when Christ returns to this earth, he comes back with a trumpet sound. Maybe it's, it's something to do with that. Other people think it's just a 10-day preparation for the Day of Atonement because that was kind of the most holy day of the year and the Feast of Trumpets happens exactly 10 days before. Could be any of those things. I don't really know. That's the beauty about um, the church, isn't it? That's the beauty about us studying together. I can tell you, I don't have all the answers here and you can go home and study it and if you find out, come and tell me and let me know so that we can um, grow in our knowledge together. So we know that they proclaimed the trumpets. We know that we today proclaim the Lord's death until he comes through what? Through the Lord's Supper, through that feast. Okay, so then we go on to the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement um, is uh, what's spoken about in verses 26 through to verse 32. Now, we went through the Day of Atonement a couple of weeks ago. The whole procedure of that is back in Leviticus chapter 16. It involves two goats. You've got the scapegoat and you've got the goat that was sacrificed. I won't go back through all of that because you've already studied through that. Finally, we've got the Feast of Booths, and this is in verses 33 to verse 44. This is another week-long feast. Um, the feast goes for seven days. The Israelites basically get to go on a camping trip. So what they would do is they would leave their homes. They would get some palm branches and they would get some other branches that have some leaves on it. It says in verses 40 to 42. And they would make these tents. They would make these small dwelling places, these booths, these tabernacles, whatever your translation might say there. And the meaning behind this festival is to say, remember how you used to live in tents in the wilderness and how God provided for you through all of that. How God was there and he gave you the manna and he gave you water to drink. He gave you meat. He gave you all the things that you needed. And just, just think back to that time and remember God's constant care and provision for you. And remember how blessed you are that you're not still in that wilderness. You've made it to the promised land. Um, and of course, in the New Testament, um, we can think of God's provision for us as well. We can remember that it's not just physically that God provides for us, but as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, he has given us who are in Christ every spiritual blessing. Okay, so let's look at our application. I want to talk about um, three points of application for all these strange feasts uh, that the Israelites held. Point number one. All of these feasts find their fulfilment in Christ. All these feasts are kind of a, a shadow of a concept, but the real fulfilment of that concept is in Christ. The real substance is in what we see in the person of Jesus. Jesus is called the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus will come in victory with trumpet sound. Jesus is the ultimate day of atonement. Jesus gives us the spiritual sustenance we need when we're in the wilderness waiting for the promised land. So all of these feasts are pointing to what Christ really accomplishes in the Christian. Also, number two, the feasts are designed to interrupt your normal work schedule. If you look at um, what it says in Leviticus 23, this is the main phrase that keeps coming up. It comes up ten times. You shall do no ordinary work. The word work here um, is the Hebrew word melacha. Um, it comes from a Hebrew word laha. Um, and this word means to send or to give a message or to deliver. 
Okay, so what does that have to do with work? The word melacha means to send someone to do a job or to assign them a task to do. Okay, so on the Sabbath and, and on all of these feast days, all throughout it, you weren't allowed to do assigned tasks. You remember when Jesus comes and he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, well, if your donkey falls into a well, if you know something bad happens on the Sabbath, you're still allowed to do good things. The point of the Sabbath isn't about stopping you from doing good, normal things. The point of the Sabbath, if you actually look at the word work here, assigned tasks, is to stop you from doing tasks that other people are telling you to do. The point is that on the Sabbath and on all of the feast days, if you were a slave, if you worked for someone else, they couldn't tell you what to do on this day. This was your day off. This was the day when they don't assign you work to do. Only God assigns you your work to do. The point is to get in the way of your work and to say, I know you've got work to do. I know you've got grain to harvest. I know you've got figs to pull off the tree. I know you've got to glean the grapes. But on these days, you're not going to do those works because people don't tell you what to do. God tells you what to do. And that's way more important than anything your boss will tell you, anything your uh, or anyone in your life will ever give you to do. So the point of this phrase, you shall do no ordinary work, is to help encourage you to think about who really gives me jobs in my life? Who really has the authority to tell me what to do? And it's not my boss. And the same for you and I. It's not our bosses. It's not the people around me that tell me how to fill up my week. It's God who tells me what my calendar is going to be like. It's God who tells me what my schedule is going to be like. The final thing uh, for us to apply is that the ultimate purpose of these feasts is about helping you to remember. Have you ever overestimated how good your memory is? I dare say you might have even done that in the past week. Have you ever gone, oh, forgot about that. I was going to call that person. I was going to write a card to that person. I was going to do this thing. I was going to do that thing. I forgot to get the milk from the shops. I forgot to get the bread. I forgot to pick up the kids from school. Uh, whatever it might be. We often think that we've got a pretty good memory. And that we're going to remember the things that are most important. And the Bible tries to encourage you time and time again to reconsider that. And to say, we're actually very forgetful. Human beings often forget things that are really important. Just ask a husband who's forgotten the wife's you know, anniversary, a birthday, whatever it might be. Um, we are, are prone to forgetting things that are really important to us. It's not because they're not important. It's just because we've got a flawed memory. It's just because things slip our mind. Our, our brains are fallible. Our brains aren't perfect. And so we forget things. And the point of these feasts is God saying, I know that you'll forget about these things. I know that you don't have a perfect memory. So I'm giving you these opportunities to get together, go out in a tent with some of your Israelite brethren, and just remember what God has done for you. Or, or go and, and remember that your harvest doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. So, so remember that by partaking in the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. 
In the 1,000 years of Israel's history from leaving Egypt into going into Babylon, there's scarcely a time when there are two generations in a row who are faithful. Have you heard this phrase in the Bible before? Judges 2 and verse 10 says, And there arose another generation after them who... Guess what? Guess what that's going to say? You, you know that, right? You've read your Bible long enough to know it says, Did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. One generation remembers, the next generation forgets. It happens time and time and time again. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6. Deuteronomy 6. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 12. Verses 4 through 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you, with uh, great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and you're full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isn't that an important reminder for all of us today? It's one thing to figure out the truth. In fact, um, Kevin DeYoung has this quote where he said, the only thing harder than finding the truth is not forgetting it. I think it's really important. The only thing harder than finding the truth is not losing it or forgetting it. And God is pleading with them. When you come into this land, there's a really high likelihood that you're going to forget me, that you're going to forget to do what's right, that you're going to forget to teach your kids about these things. You're going to forget to do the right thing. One of Satan's greatest tools is not outright sin. It's not outright disobedience to God. Satan wants to distract you. He wants your mind focused on other things so that your actual responsibilities fade away in the background. You forget what God has done. You forget what you're asked to do. And all of a sudden, that path to forgetfulness leads straight on to unfaithfulness. And that's why uh, Paul says, you know, when he writes to the young preacher Titus in Titus 3 and verse 1 he says remind them remind them of these things he says the same thing to second uh, to Timothy in second Timothy 2:14 remind them of these things not always tell them new things not try to give them something new and exciting every time you present a lesson just remind them of what they already know because people forget people lose track and that's my job that's anyone's job who gets up here and presents a lesson um, if you ever hear a lesson and you say, ah, oh, I've already heard that before, that's all old stuff. That's the point, right? <laughs> that's exactly what we're asked to do, to remind you of things that you already know. 
Most of what I'm going to say up here is going to be things that you already know. And I'm just reminding you and Abraham and Danny and Rick and Aaron, anyone else who's coming up and giving you lessons. They're just reminding you of the fact of how God loves you, how sin is really bad and how you can be saved through Christ alone. And you need that reminder all the time in your life because your memory isn't that good and you will forget. What's the antidote to forgetfulness? It's this. It's coming together and it's remembering. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why that's the central focus of the New Testament. It's about coming together and doing this in remembrance of Christ. Because if you're not actively engaged in assembling together, in meeting together with the brethren, in participating in the works of the church, you will forget about what the church does. Uh, It's sad when you visit congregations, there are congregations around, who they only meet once a week. They only meet on a Sunday morning and they have their worship service and that's all they do. Um, When I visit congregations like that, I think, I don't know how I would be spiritually if I only got that once a week reminder. I don't know whether I would be healthy spiritually if it was only once a week that I was able to see my brethren and be encouraged and built up and reminded of what God has done and what he asks of me. I'm not here to um, criticise other congregations but simply to praise this congregation because we do have all sorts of opportunities where we try to meet together, where we try to encourage one another and build each other up. Have a, have a look at this. We have our Sunday morning worship. That's where some congregations stop And we don't stop there, do we? We keep going. We've got Sunday morning Bible study, children's Bible class, Sunday evening worship, Wednesday evening Bible study. We've got meetings. We've got Wednesday evening singing and prayer. We've got ladies' class, Kids for Christ, youth group, singing nights, board game nights, lunch and lectureship, ladies' day, men's day, men's breakfast, church outings, trivia nights, end of year functions, Bible school picnic. And that's just all that I could fit on the screen. And this is a testament to how this congregation is trying to encourage everyone here. Remember God. Don't forget what he's done for you and don't forget your obligations to him. When I look at my faith and at what has built me up most in my faith as a Christian, there are a lot of different factors that have helped me to grow as a Christian. My my parents, their example, their teaching, um, the church where I grew up, I would say, though, that when I look at this list, when I look at the work that this congregation has done to remind me of God and my spiritual obligations, this would be one of the biggest factors for my spiritual growth. And I have you all to thank for that. And so I want to say thanks. Thanks for helping me grow. Thanks for reminding me. Every time you come along and you're involved and you commit yourself to the, to the reminding to our feast days that we have, you're helping me to grow. You're building up my faith. You're encouraging me. I was so encouraged by our lectureship this year. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, so I'll show you some photos and, and you can remember um, what we did. As these photos go through, I just want to tell you... Um, I was really encouraged, not because we had lots and lots and lots of visitors, not because um, we had some really great meaty lessons from lots of great teachers, not just because we had new faces in the building, 
not just because we had you guys to invite your friends along. The thing that encouraged me and built me up the most when we had our lectureship was the fact that you were all there. You were all part of it. Everyone in this room came and participated and was active and involved. And that, more than anything else, builds up my faith. That, more than anything else, shows me that God is still working and active in this congregation. That the more we show up to these things, the more we get involved. That's a testament to the fact that you're committed to reminding me, encouraging me, and building up my faith. We had 60 people come bowling on a Sunday night. Who wants to go bowling on a Sunday night? I said to Hannah that afternoon, I'm so exhausted. I hope everyone cancels so we can go home and sleep. But 60 people came out and wanted to come, come bowling. Right? This is a testament to the fact that you and I are working together, just like in ancient Israel, we come together on these feast days. We come together for all these activities to remind each other and to say, let's keep going. Let's stay active. This isn't about putting the spotlight on you. This isn't about you know, patting you on the back and, and trying to take attention away from God. don't want you to misunderstand me. What I'm saying is your involvement and your participation and your attendance are some of the most helpful ways you can build up my faith and get me to focus on God. And I'm pretty sure I speak for more than just myself when I say that. So I just want to say thanks and keep going. Keep doing it. Keep getting involved. Keep trying your best. Keep doing what you can to build up my faith and reminding me that our God still lives, that he's done wonderful things, and he's made wonderful promises. Let's continue that together, brethren.